0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you are enjoying these studies, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. The Torah portion begins with a puzzle. If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days. Giving birth to a baby makes a woman ritually unclean. This means she could not enter the tabernacle or touch the sacrifices until being ritually purified. She had to wait 40 days for purification if she had given birth to a boy and 80 days if she had given birth to a girl. Why does the birth of a child make the mother unclean and what does it mean to be made unclean? Before we try to answer those questions, let's try to understand the problem from a different perspective. The perspective Of the soul. Everyone says that the birth of a child is a miracle. To be sure, human conception employs impressive biological mechanisms in the exchange, reconfiguration, and replication of human DNA, but it's not really any more miraculous than any other type of biological reproduction. Single-celled microorganisms also reproduce, and they do so much more rapidly than human beings, Yet nobody waxes romantically about the miracle of fresh mold or the appearance of creeping mildew. All life on earth engages in some type of reproductive behavior. Why do we think of babies being born as something so miraculous? The conception of a human child summons a spiritual entity to leave its spiritual home and enter physical existence within biological form. That process is called incarnation, a word that means becoming flesh. This explains why the Bible has a different view of human sexuality than the rest of the world. The secular world reviews human sexuality as a toy to be employed for personal gratification, entertainment, validation of the ego, manipulation, persuasion, and so forth. The world is obsessed with sexuality, but it does not recognize it as something spiritual. In the liberal world view. Sexuality is considered an inalienable right that belongs to every human being to exercise and express in whatever fashion, combination, or fetish they feel inclined. The Torah disagrees. In the Torah, we find strict laws governing human sexuality, moral laws limiting sexuality to marriage, and ceremonial laws governing sexual behavior within the bounds of ritual purity. That's because human sexuality trades in souls. It's not just about physical gratification. It's a conduit for drawing spiritual beings into the created order. This is why the Torah cordoned off sexuality at childbirth with holy laws. Hashem ensured that the amazing miracle of birth would not be treated as something mundane. On a mystical level, the mother's 40- or 80-day journey before her purification is like a microcosm for the baby's own odyssey through life. Prior to having the baby, the mother was in a state of ritual purity. She had access to the sanctuary, she could enjoy the presence of God in his holy dwelling place, and she was ritually fit to eat from his table. After childbirth, she undergoes a period of time during which she is prohibited from entering the temple. She must count the days outside the dwelling place of God. At the conclusion of the allotted days, the woman undergoes a purification ceremony. She is readmitted to the sanctuary. She can return to the presence of God that she enjoyed before giving birth. This progression of events symbolizes the baby's own passage through life. The baby's soul begins in the eternal dwelling place of God, but her birth in human flesh requires a departure from that place and a period of time sojourning outside of God's heavenly tabernacle. After an allotted period of time, the soul leaves the body to return to God. The complexity of the Bible's purity laws makes it easy to miss the larger point. The purity laws are supposed to teach us the discipline of the fear of the Lord by constantly reminding us of his presence in our midst. In the days of the temple, the observance of the purity laws raised people's consciousness of the presence of God to a new height. Those attempting to maintain a state of ritual purity for the sake of entering the sanctuary needed to exercise constant vigilance. They were constantly mindful of the fact that their physical actions and interactions in the world would affect their access to the presence of God. In this way, the purity laws cultivated a higher awareness of God and forced the person to continually distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean, even in matters of small detail which seem inconsequential. The ritual purity laws do not have much practical application today because there is no temple, no sacrifice or functioning Levitical priesthood, but there's a spiritual dimension that does apply today. The Apostle Paul tells us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, second Corinthians seven one, thereby making a distinction between two different types of impurity, physical and spiritual. The Torah's laws of ritual purity deal Only with the physical type of ritual impurity, those things that pertain to the human body. Physical contact with various sources of ritual impurity can ceremonially defile the body. But the prophets often spoke about a spiritual impurity engendered by sin. It doesn't necessarily make the body ritually unclean, but it defiles the soul and the conscience, thrusting the defiled soul from the presence of God. Paul urges the disciples of Yeshua to separate themselves from the world for the sake of both physical purity and spiritual purity as they prepare to enter the presence of God in the coming kingdom. He writes, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians six sixteen through 7 one Paul reminds us that it's God's desire to dwell among his people. Therefore, we should be mindful of maintaining both physical and spiritual purity. The goal is bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The purity laws teach the fear of God by reminding us to keep God's presence in mind. Even in the small details, God desires to dwell among us. He longs to show himself as the father of our souls, but sin defiles the soul, separating her from God's presence, much the way that contact with ritual impurity defiles the body. Spiritual defilement is different than physical defilement. The things that contaminate the body do not necessarily contaminate the soul, Instead, it is sin that contaminates the soul, whether in thought, speech, or deed. Sinful thoughts defile the soul. The sins of the heart belong to the realm of thought. For this reason, the master warned about the heart. He said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. These are the things which defile the man. He praised those who are pure in heart above those who are ceremonially pure in the flesh. The pure in heart are those who rule their thoughts. After his sin with Bathsheba, David prayed for spiritual purification. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, he prayed. Create in me a clean heart. To enter the presence of God, we need spiritual purification. Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Sinful words defile the soul. The sages homiletically applied the laws of biblical leprosy to sins committed with the tongue. In Jewish interpretation, biblical leprosy was a punishment for evil speech, complaining, murmuring, gossip, slander, and other sins committed with words. When Isaiah entered the presence of the Lord, he became immediately aware of his words and he cried out, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah 6.5 The apostles made the same connection, warning against worldly and empty chatter and ungodly talk that spreads like leprosy. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. This is the deeper meaning of the words, He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Proverbs 21.23 Sinful deeds defile the soul. The Torah provides examples of the types of sins which are so potent that they ceremonially defile a person or even the ground upon which the sins are committed. Through sexual immorality and idolatry, the Canaanites so defiled themselves that they were ejected from the land. The Lord warns the children of Israel not to make the same mistakes. The spilling of innocent blood also defiles, and the accumulation of spiritual defilement will drive God's presence from the people, and it will drive the people out from the land. As it says in Psalm 106, They mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds." For what reason does the spiritual godly soul leave her place in the presence of God to descend into this world and clothe herself in human garments of flesh and blood? What compels her to trade that world of perfect bliss and wholeness for this world of limitation where God is concealed from our view, Before its human conception and birth, the soul basked in the dazzling glory of God's presence. She had angels for playmates. She danced with the heavenly host in spiritual ecstasy, splendor, and joy like a particle of light swept along in a wave of song and splendor radiating from the Almighty. What did she lack that brought her to this place? Why did you leave heaven? Some religious people worry about getting to heaven when they die. They hope that their religion will give them the ticket to enter heaven. And they look forward to leaving this earth and finally entering heaven. They have completely forgotten that they have already been to heaven. That's where they came from in the first place. In the apocryphal book of wisdom, King Solomon says, I had a good spirit. Yea, rather being good, I came into a body undefiled, but the corruptible body presseth down the soul, and the earthy tabernacle waiteth down the mind that museth upon many things. wisdom eight twenty twenty one and nine fifteen Before being born into the world as a human being, every soul knows the source of its being in God. But as soon as this divine spiritual essence we call the soul wraps herself in the garments of a human body, she enters the world of concealment and forgets everything she knew. Here on earth, we forget about heaven and all our experiences there. We no longer see the glory of God. We no longer sense his presence. We forget that our whole reality once consisted of worshiping in his presence. We had an uninterrupted connection with God. We knew him as a child knows his father, and he knew our souls as a father knows his children. But when we entered the corruptible body that presseth down the soul, waiteth down the mind— We forgot everything. We lost the connection to God and forgot that he exists. Now we wander in this world like spiritual amnesiacs, trying to figure out some sense of purpose. Lost and confused in this world of limitation, the soul relies upon the physical body's five senses to grope about in the world. She relies on our physical brains to filter and process thoughts. She becomes subject to our changing moods and emotional animal states, and she gets swept along with our physical appetites and inclinations. Inevitably, she becomes defiled by sin and selfishness that places obstacles between her and God, making it harder and harder for her to return to her origin in heaven. If all that is true, it would have been better for the soul to remain in heaven and never be born. We have defiled our souls. The prophet Isaiah laments, all of us. Have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The soul finds herself lost, banned from the presence of God, unable to enter the sanctuary, exiled from Eden, counting off the days in hope that she may yet return. What is the solution? Her purification process begins with repentance. Recall how the gospel story itself begins with John the Immerser and his summons to repentance and immersion. Repentance is for cleansing from spiritual defilement. Immersion is for cleansing from bodily defilement. John's message of repentance is the same message proclaimed by all the prophets before him, like what Isaiah says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. On the physical level, the Torah offers purification rituals for the new mother, for the husband and the wife, for the leper, for the leprous house, and for those made unclean by contact with human death. The ceremonial procedures differ, but all of them have in common the concept of immersion in the mikvah. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and be clean, Leviticus 14.9. The Torah's immersions and purification ceremonies suffice for purification of the flesh, but the purification of the soul requires something more. James says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the book of Hebrews says, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling for those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, that's physical defilement, How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Through the efficacy of repentance and the intoning merit of the blood of the Messiah, the soul is cleansed. Messiah washes us that we might have the forgiveness of sins. He sprinkles us with pure water and washes away every spiritual defilement. But I have to ask... If the soul must go through this cleansing and purification only so that she may return to Hashem where she was before, what has she gained? What has she acquired that she did not have before? The soul was already perfect, already pure, already in communion with the Almighty God, already nourished in His presence before she ever left on this misadventure to incarnate in defiling human flesh. What was the point? Going back to our earlier question, for, for what reason does the soul leave her place in the presence of God to descend into this world and clothe herself in human garments of flesh and blood? What did she lack that brought her to this place? Why did you leave heaven? The soul is on a mission. The soul is supposed to bring something back, a trophy, so to speak, from this mission, something it did not have before, that is, the body. I'm speaking of the resurrection of the dead, whereby a corpse, the height of ritual impurity, is transformed into a living being, a heavenly man, an angelic being, neither dying, nor subject to defilement, nor giving in marriage, nor being given in marriage, but like the angels in heaven, but not an angel." a human being who has been elevated above the level of mortal impurities. Thus, Adam and Eve are returned to Eden. The soul comes into the world to be defiled, knowing that she will be. She knows that she will be separated from the presence of God, specifically so that she can seek God and find him again. And when she does, she returns to him with something more, the body. Through those efforts, the animal is raised to a higher state, imperishable, no longer mortal, no longer decaying, leprous, dying, subject to shortcomings of human limitations, but elevated to behold God, to bask in his presence as soul and body, one flesh, a new creature, a complete being. This is why the Messiah did not simply die for sin. His mission was to elevate the physical, so he rose in a physical body. Job once cursed the day he was born, the day he was conceived, and he lamented, who can make the clean out of the unclean? But then he remembered the future resurrection of the dead, and he changed his attitude and said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul